Let's open up to Malachi again this morning. Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Malachi 3, verses 6 through 12. Page 954, if you're using a pew Bible. Malachi 3, 6 through 12. Before we read God's word, let's ask his blessing upon our hearing of it this morning. Father, we do uh, ask for your help and your blessing upon the reading and the preaching of your word this morning. Lord God, we need you to open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. And so, Father, recognizing our weakness, recognizing our frailty, as we come now to your word, Father, we ask that you would help us, that you would bless us, that you would open our eyes, that you would cause us to see and understand and believe the things you have set before us and told us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear then God's holy word read for you now. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Thus far the reading of God's word. Dear congregation, this past week I had a very interesting uh, experience. Uh, As many of you know, Uh, We have a a litter of puppies at our house. Been working hard to try and find a home for each and every one of those puppies. Last weekend, I showed some of you the text thread. Last weekend, I was uh, contacted by an individual via a listing I had on a website. I was contacted by a man named John Harrison from Tennessee who's going to send me a check for the last remaining puppy. Well, John Harrison from Tennessee did send me a check for the last remaining puppy. And the check was for $1,200 more than the agreed upon price. And he proceeded to tell me that the extra money was for the person picking up the puppy. I just had to send it to them via Venmo. I said, well, this is weird became even weirder uh, when I realized that this John Harrison from Tennessee sent me a check from a sugarcane farm in Louisiana. 
I texted this man, John Harrison, and I said, I got a number of concerns right now. If you really want this puppy, we're going to have to talk on the phone. Thus far, we'd only been conversing via text, which was coming through a, his Gmail account, which in itself is a bit suspicious. To my surprise, Mr. John Harrison proceeded to call me, not from a cell phone number, but from his Gmail account, and it kind of sounded like one of those people who calls you when your used car warranty is expiring. Um, anyway, not only did Mr. John Harrison from Tennessee, who wrote a check from Louisiana, call me on the phone, he called me as a man with a Middle Eastern accent. Uh, so now, now, now it's, it's done, right? I was done before that, but I was a little ornery, and so I began to, to question him about this check, and I said, where's this check from? And he said, the check's from Capital One Bank in Tennessee, and I'm like, no, that's not where the check's from. Well, he must have had it somewhere, because about a minute later, if I gave him that long, he rambled off on the name of where the check was from. I said, who signed the check? He said, my assistant. I said, what's her name? Tell me. I, saw, I told you where the check was from, just cash it. He was getting mad at me. And I said, Mr. John Harrison, you belong in jail. And he hung up. <laughs> I called Ottawa County Dispatch, and unfortunately, they're like, it happens all the time, just tear up the check. If you didn't get defrauded, be done with it. So that, that's the end of the story. Uh, but, but here's the deal. Mr. John Harrison from Tennessee, through this elaborate scheme, he was trying to rob me. He was trying to rob me. Now, robbing me is bad enough, but it's nothing. <laughs> compared to what was happening in Malachi's day. Because the people in Malachi's day were robbing God. We see that in our text together this morning. Let's, let's look at it, and let's notice first the, the assertion. The assertion, verses 6 and 7. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed." From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. With these words, God is telling his people why he continues to put up with them. Remember, throughout this book of Malachi, we have seen that, that God's people are a sinful and rebellious people. They, they doubt God's love. Uh, they withhold God's honor. They're faithless towards one another. They question God's justice, right? And, and this has gone on, God says, for, for generations. This has gone on since the days of their fathers, God says to these people. And yet here he, he tells his people why he has not cast them off forever. Here he tells his people why he has not consumed them in his wrath. It's not because they are faithful and obedient and deserving of God's kindness. They are not. No, God makes it clear here that the only reason his people continue to exist as a people, the only reason they've not been consumed by his wrath because of their sins is because the Lord does not change. The theological word we use to describe this characteristic and attribute of God is immutable. God is immutable, we say. That means God does not change. Boys and girls, you and I, we, we change, don't we? Our bodies change. Our minds change. Our lives change. We change. Change is part of Living in this world, 
but God does not change. Of course, this, this does, as a little side note, capture for us something of the wonder of Christmas, because at Christmas, what happens? Well, God becomes man, and in that, then the changeless one becomes subject to change. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, but Jesus, Jesus does not stay, stay a baby, does he? No, Jesus grows in wisdom and stature, Luke 2.52 says. That, that's the wonder of Christmas. The changeless one becoming subject to change. But notice God's immutability here, his, his changelessness. It's set forth as the great hope of his people. It's because he does not change that his people are not consumed. Okay, long before this, God had established a covenant with these people. In his grace, he, he came to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God said to them, I will be a God unto you and to your descendants after you. And it's because God does not change. It's because God remains faithful to his word and to his covenant promises. It's because he does not change that, that these sinful people remain his people by grace alone. And people of God, our, our situation today is, is, is no different we look at our lives, and, and let's be honest, what, what reason have we given God to put up with us? What reason have we given God to not consume us in his wrath? I mean, our lives, too, are, are full of sin. Why does he continue to put up with us? Why does he remain faithful to us? Why does God not cast us off forever? Here he tells us, it's because I, the Lord, do not change. It's because I, the Lord, the Lord who graciously chose you for salvation before the foundation of the world, the Lord who secured your salvation through the precious blood of my son Jesus, the Lord who applied your salvation through the working of my Holy Spirit in your heart, it's because I, the Lord, who have done all these things for you, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. This is the assertion. The God who has made his grace known to us in Jesus. The God who has said that in Christ nothing can separate you from my love. This God does not change. That's good news for sinners like us. Let's notice second, the invitation we see it in the middle of verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, with these words, God is calling the people of Malachi's day to repentance. With these words, God is calling the people of Malachi's day to, to turn away from their service to sin and self and to give their lives unto him again in obedient faith. God is saying, hey, you've kind of lost your way. Renew your commitment to me. Return to me. But it's interesting, isn't it? In, in the verses before this, the people asked what? The people were asking, where is the God of justice? We looked at that last week. God proceeded to answer that question by saying, I'm coming. And yet here I think God gives what might be seen as, as another answer to that question. And it goes something like this. Never mind where is the God of justice. 
The question is, where are you? Where are you? Essentially, when God says, return to me, he's saying, I'm not the one who's lost. You're the one who's lost. Return to me and I will return to you. Return to me and guess what? You will find the God of justice. You will. But no, well, God is saying, I'm not the problem. You, you people are the problem. You are the ones who've wandered away. You are the ones who must return to me. I'm not the one who must return to you. Now, friends, make no mistake. God's word is living and it's active. And therefore, the, the invitation here speaks as loudly and relevantly and as personally to us today as it did to the people of Malachi's day. And perhaps you look at your life this morning and you think, where is God? I don't see him. I don't feel him. I don't know anything of the sweet fellowship that others have with him. Or, or maybe even I don't know anything of the sweet fellowship I, I once had with him. Where is God? And perhaps God is saying to you this morning, the question is not where am I? The question is where are you? The fact is some of you right now who wonder where God is, you are lost. Some of you have, have wandered from Christ. Some of you are just like the prodigal son who went to live in the far country and squandered away all the tokens of his father's love. And God this morning is saying, where are you? He's also saying, return to me. Return to me, and I will return to you. By the way, do you, do you remember what happened when the prodigal son returned? Well, he was still a long way off. You know the story. His father saw him coming. What did his father do when he saw him coming a long way off? Did he, did he go sit on the porch and wait for his son to arrive? No. The father girded up his loins and he ran out to meet his son. And when he got to his son, he embraced him, didn't he? That's a picture of the truth set forth here in Malachi. That's a picture of this God who says, return to me and I will, I will return to you. Even when you're still a long way off, I'll return to you. Even when you can just barely make out my house in the distance, I'll return to you. That's our God. He is the God who doesn't just welcome the repentant sinner home. He is the God who eagerly welcomes the repentant sinner home. This is the invitation to the people of Malachi's day, to, to you this morning. Return to me, God says, and I will return to you. Let's notice third, the blindness, the blindness. Look at how the people respond. How shall we... Return Now, do not hear this question as if it's being asked by people who are looking for directions. Do not hear this question as if it's being asked by a people who are generally interested in the way back to God. No, this is a question being asked by people who do not know they are lost. 
Essentially, these people are saying, return? Well, what do you mean return? We're confused, God. We thought we were kind of with you. The New Living Translation captures the idea well. But you ask, how can we return when we've never gone astray? Okay, th- th- this question is asked by a people who are blind to their spiritual condition. And you know, as we see them ask this question, it ought to terrify us a little bit. Because this question shows us that sinners are often blind and ignorant of their spiritual condition. David understood this. Which is why in Psalm 19.12, David makes this request of God. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. See what David acknowledges there? David acknowledges that there are sins in his life he is blind to. And he looks to God for mercy in regards to those sins as well. That's the right and proper thing for the believer to do. But it all begins with with recognizing that as sinners, our spiritual eyesight leaves a lot to be desired. And the people of Malachi's day didn't realize this. God says, return to me. And they're like, um... Yeah, we're not, we're not really sure what you mean. We don't think we've departed from you, actually. We, we think we're being quite faithful, God. Interestingly enough, the, the church in Laodicea exhibited this same blindness. Revelation 3, 17, God says to them, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. That's what the people thought. They thought they were doing pretty well. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, but you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus there says to that church, you think you're doing well. Guess what? You're you're not doing well. Actually, your relationship with me is a complete disaster. And so God follows this up by saying, so be zealous and repent That's Jesus' way of saying to the church in Laodicea, wake up, get with it, stop fooling yourself. Now let me ask, might, might you be one of these people who needs to wake up this morning? Might you be one of these people who needs to get with it this morning? Might you be one of these people who are just sort of going through the spiritual motions, thinking everything's okay in your relationship with God, when in fact it is not? If so, I pray. My prayer for you this morning is that God will give you grace to see and to recognize that you've wandered from him, that you're living in the far country, And he'll cause you to say with that prodigal son, I perish here with hunger. I'm going to arise and I'm going to go back to my father. That's my prayer for you this morning. It's the best thing that can happen to people who are blind to their spiritual condition. That they come to their senses. They see where they are. And they return to their father. Well, let's notice fourth, the sin. The sin, verse 8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Again, we see their blindness. And then God answers, in your tithes and contributions. After God delivered his people from Egypt, 
he established laws which were to govern their life together in the promised land. One of those laws was that of the tithe. I assume many of you, if you've spent any manner of time in church, are familiar with the word tithe. You know what a tithe is. The word tithe means, means a tenth. And God told his people that each year they, they, were returned, they were to return to him a tenth of all the produce of their land and of all their herds and their flocks. Right? Each year they were to give to God a tenth of their produce and a tenth of their herds and flocks. Leviticus 27.30 says, Every tithe of the land, every tenth of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. 27 verse 32, Every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal that passes under your staff shall be holy to the Lord. Okay? The people were to return to the Lord a tithe, a tenth of all their produce, and of all their livestock. Now, God had a purpose for this tie that was to facilitate the worship of his people. It was to provide for the Levites, but, but we don't need to get into that this morning. What was happening in Malachi's day? Well, what was happening in Malachi's day is that the people were withholding their tithe. As verse 10 tells us, the people were not bringing the full tithe into the storehouse. They were giving some of their produce and some of their flocks, but not the amount God asked for. Not a, not a tenth. And God says, you're robbing me. You're robbing me. And we learn here that whenever we don't give God what he's asked for, whenever we don't give God what is his, we rob him. We, we, we steal from him. Spiritually speaking, we're, we're not that different than John Harrison from Tennessee writing a check from Louisiana. Right? Whenever we don't give God what he asked for, we're thieves. Now the question is, is often asked, you know, how does giving work in the New Testament? What, what role does the tithe play in the New Testament? Because you see, the, the New Testament church is never instructed to tithe. And that is true, and to some degree it makes sense, because most of us also don't have crops and cattle. Maybe a few of us do, but most of us don't. However, the New Testament church, it is instructed to give weekly, of its financial resources. We see that in 1 Corinthians 16 too. The New Testament church is instructed to give as he or she prospers. That means New Testament Christians are to give according, according to their means. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we read much about, about giving. There we read that we're to give cheerfully, we're to give willingly, we're to give generously, and more than anything, we are to give in light of the gift of God's one and only Son. I always find it interesting that Paul wraps up that teaching on giving with the words, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What is God's indescribable gift? It's, it's the gift of Jesus. 
Anyway, in the New Testament, we're, we're not commanded to tithe. Instead, we're commanded to, we're commanded to give cheerfully. We're commanded to give willingly. We're commanded to give generously. We're commanded to give according to our means or in proportion to what we have. And we're commanded to give in light of the gift of God's one and only son. And I tend to agree with those who say, listen, if in the Old Testament, before Jesus came, they were to give 10%, how much more should we be giving, right? In the New Testament in light of the gift of God's one and only son. Anyway, this much is sure, okay? This much is sure. We too rob God when we don't give of our resources and our financial resources as he's told us to in his word. We rob God when we don't give according to our means, We rob God when we don't give generously. We rob God when we don't give cheerfully. We rob God when we do not give in light of the gift of his one and only son. And that's a sin. Of course, I think we should be honest. Money is not all that God asks of us. No, he he actually asks for our entire lives. Romans 12 Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. This is your spiritual act of worship. The fact is, some of us rob God because we don't give our money as God has instructed us to do. And that's a sin. Others of us rob God because we don't give our lives as he's instructed us to. And that too is a sin. When we keep our lives from him, when we use our lives and our talents and our abilities to serve ourselves and to enrich ourselves, we also are robbing God. I think sometimes of of people who've been giving just beautiful singing voices, right? There's all sorts of people in our country that have beautiful singing voices. Taylor Swift isn't one of them. Um... I used to like Taylor Swift for a while, but she's really rubbed me the wrong way lately. Uh, Anyways, this has nothing to do with her. But I think of people who have beautiful singing voices, right? And I think of all the people uh, in our country who use those voices not to glorify God, but to serve themselves and to to get rich, right? And and the the lyrics they sing are are completely anti-Christian. And I, I, I hear those people's voices, and I think, man, if you, you could use that voice to glorify Christ, and you're using it for this, right? You are robbing God. Of course, that application needs to be broadened. It's not just those people. That, that application needs to, needs to be brought into the, to the whole of life. God has given us all talents and abilities and gifts, and we're to use these things to glorify him. And when we don't, when we use these things to glorify ourselves, we are robbing God. Let me ask, are you committing this sin today? Are you robbing God today? Are you withholding from God that which he has asked you for? Are you? If you are, note well, this is sin. Let's notice next the curse Look what God says to these people who are robbing him. Verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, 
the whole nation of you. Now, these words are spoken in accordance with the covenant that God had established with his people. Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 through 18. But if you will not obey the voice of your God and be careful to do his commandments and statutes that I command you today, then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl and the fruit of your ground and your herds and your flocks. Okay, God's people were told in Deuteronomy that if they didn't do what God commanded, tithing is one of those things God commanded, if they didn't do what God commanded, they would be cursed. And it's happening here in Malachi. The people are not tithing as God commanded them to, and they're cursed. Now, what did the curse look like? Well, apparently they had a pest problem. In verse 11, God says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that he will not destroy the fruit of your soil. Most believe the devourer is some sort of pest, some sort of insect that was eating their crops and causing them to have lousy and pathetic harvests. <clears throat> but you, you see what's happening. These people withheld their tithe, probably because they believed that by doing so, they would have more for themselves. And God says, wrong, wrong. Turns out when you rob me, you also rob yourself. When you, when you don't give me what's mine, <laughs> the less you have for yourself. Now, here, here's what we need to know. Galatians 3 verse 13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That is the new covenant reality that we enjoy. The curses which ought to come upon us because of our disobedience fell on Christ on the cross such that we do not suffer them. And yet we should understand that even within the New Testament in some profound, or sorry, even within the new covenant in some profound way, those who do do not give God what's his, deprive themselves of blessings. Okay, listen to what we read in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. These words are written to Christians, to new covenant believers. They're placed within the context of Paul's teaching on giving. There Paul writes this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows sparingly will also find that the devourer has destroyed his crops, as it were. Now, this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean there's a one-to-one -one correlation. It doesn't mean that if you suddenly have an unexpected vehicle repair bill this week, God is teaching you a lesson for withholding your offering this morning. That's not what this means. We need to be careful to go that far. Trials come for all sorts of reasons. It could mean that. That's not necessarily what it means. But the principle remains. And we have to deal with it. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And it is possible then. It is possible that one of the reasons you and I do not know more of God's abundance in our lives is because we rob him. And because we keep back for ourselves what rightly belongs to him. Well, let's notice finally the challenge. We see it in verses 10 through 12. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house 
and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need, I'll rebuke the devourer so that it will not destroy. Verse 12, then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delights, says the Lord of hosts. God here challenges his people who've been robbing him with these words, put me to the test. You shouldn't test God unless God tells you to. Then it's probably okay, right? And that's what God tells you to do here. Put me to the test. Put me to the test. Give me what's mine. And see for yourself if you're not blessed because of it. Now, once again, this challenge is given on the basis of that old covenant where God's people were told that they would be blessed because of their obedience. In the new covenant, we're blessed because of Christ's obedience. That's the way it is. We always fall back on that. And yet, once again, the principle remains. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap bountifully. That's what the New Testament says. And when I read this story in Malachi, two particular stories come to my mind. The first is a story from my own life. I uh, remember one Sunday morning when I was in seminary. So we're talking 11, 12, maybe even 13 years ago. We were getting ready to go to church. And at that time, we went to church just like you all go to church. I wasn't a, I wasn't a preacher yet. I, I, I gathered with the congregation for worship. We were, we were getting ready to go uh, to church. And I sat down at the counter to, to write the check for my weekly offering. And I remember as I sat down to write that check that I was suddenly just, I was gripped by fear. I wasn't working. We had more money going out than we had coming in. And here I was about to send more money out. And I, and I hesitated. Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't give my offering, I thought. Maybe that's not the best use of my resources at this point in my life. Surely God would understand, right? I mean, he knows that I'm trying to be a pastor. And then, God, God spoke to me, I'll say. Not, not, not supernaturally, not a voice from heaven, but in, but in the way he, he does to his people. And I heard him saying, Dirk, do you really think I will let you give this offering to me and leave you destitute and in need? Do you really think that? And I remember answering, no. <laughs> no, I, 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 I don't think that. And I gave that offering as an expression of my trust in God. And over a decade later, I can say without a doubt that God has, sounds almost blasphemous, passed the test. He has shown himself faithful to meet my every need and more. In fact, I dare say, right, in my sinful nature, I say, oh, woe is me, right? I gave myself to serve the Lord and I have nothing to show for it. That was last week. But when I step back and when I see things really as they are and God gives me grace, I can say, no, actually the windows of heaven have opened above me as I've given myself, my money, my life to the Lord. That's been my experience uh, 13 years after I sat there thinking whether or not I should write that check. A second story, some years ago, 
uh, there was a farmer uh, who I knew. Uh, and, and this farmer, he gave significant amount of money to a missionary uh, in need. There was a need that had come before the church on, on this missionary's behalf. Something had happened to them out in the mission field. And he proceeded to cut a check. And, and I want to say, I don't know for sure, but I want to say the check was in the neighborhood of $10,000, right? It wasn't chump change. But he said, no, I, I'm going to help this missionary. Anyway, about two weeks after <laughs> he cut this check, and I don't even know how I found out about the check. It's not like he came up and told me, but I, I found out about it in God's providence. About two weeks later, I'm talking to this farmer after church, and, and this farmer proceeds to tell me how his second cutting of hay, Michael, appreciate this, was just extraordinary. It was extraordinary. And he says, Pastor, I don't understand why my hay crop was so good. I mean, it's been dry. Most of the other farmers I've talked to have been getting a fairly average second cutting. Mine was way above average. I don't get it. Now, I don't know. I don't know if he put two and two together. I, I don't think he did. Honestly, those who give out of love for Christ probably don't often put two. They just give because they like to give. But I put two and two together. I couldn't help but notice that this man out of love for Christ and his kingdom and his people gave generously. And wouldn't you know it, shortly thereafter, this man also in a very real and earthly way reaped bountifully. This is, this is our God, beloved. This is our God. He is a God who challenges us to test him with our obedience and to give him what's his in order that he might show himself to us as faithful and as exceedingly generous. And so let me ask you, where is God challenging you to test him today? If I might, if I might maybe put it another way, where is God challenging you to, to stick your neck out in service of the Lord Jesus Christ? Perhaps it is in regard to your giving. Perhaps it's time for you to, to increase the amount you give to the work of Christ's kingdom. You don't have to give it here. We're fine. Our budget's made, but I bet there's a lot of missionaries who need it. Some of you have probably been giving the same amount to the work of Christ's kingdom for years. And you can give that amount mindlessly with no sacrifice whatsoever. If so, to you, God is saying this morning, test me. Try me. Give sacrificially. Give to the point that it hurts just a little bit to write that check. And see. See if I don't give you a better, fuller, and richer life. And that money in your bank account promises to do. Perhaps God's calling you into seminary or the mission field. You think it won't work? I have a family to support. I have bills to pay. If so, God says to you, test me. Try me. I dare you to find out for yourself if I won't take care of you. I dare you to find out for yourself if I won't meet your every need. Maybe he's calling you to have a personal stake in this, to, to, to adoption. I'm trying to think of some ways he might be calling us to stretch ourselves. With adoption comes all sorts of worries and concerns and questions, and yet we must admit caring for the orphan 
is one of those things God calls us to do in his word. And if adoption is something God has laid on your heart, something that's crossed your mind, I might invite you to hear him saying today, test me, test me. See if I, if I won't open the windows of heaven for you and pour down blessings, spiritual blessings, material blessings upon you until there is no more need. Test me. Maybe there's another area where God is calling you to test him with your obedience. And you're making every excuse you can about why you can't do what he's calling you to do and why you can't do what he's asking you to do. It's too expensive. It's too risky. It's too uncertain. It's too this or it's too that. Or, or what about my children? Or what about my aging parents? And God is saying to you this morning, test me. Try me. See for yourself what I won't do. And seriously, right? Seriously, why would we think God wouldn't be generous. Why would we think that he who owns a cattle on a thousand hills would withhold blessings and provision from his people? I mean, God has already given us the greatest gift of all. The gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, 32, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything we need? I love that. Since he gave us his son, seems reasonable to think he'll give us everything else that we need as well. He will. He will. This morning, God challenges us to discover this truth for ourselves by giving him what's his of our money and even more by giving him what's his of our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. This morning we praise you that you do not change. And because you do not change, we are not consumed. Lord, we confess that each of us this morning is guilty of robbing you in some way, shape, or form. Forgive us for our sins and thank you for the blood that cleanses Lord, help us to see even this morning where you might be calling us to step out in faith, to test you, and to see what you might do, and enable us to respond accordingly for Jesus' sake. Amen.